There's a picture going around the internet, uh, maybe you've seen it, of a dog completely surrounded by sheep. The sheep are so tightly packed together that all you can see is the dog's head sticking out. And far from the dog being in control of the sheep, it looks like the sheep are about to crush him. And the caption is, when you lied on your CV about having previous sheepdog experience. It is a humorous picture, but it makes a serious point. Someone claiming to be qualified for a job they're not actually qualified for will soon find themselves in over their heads. And there will be consequences either for those around them if they can't do what they're meant to be able to do or for themselves if they're, if they're found out and sacked. And just as it's possible for people to be unqualified for a job, so it's possible for people to be unqualified for eldership. And if that's true, there will be serious consequences. Uh, serious consequences for the flock of God that the man is meant to be looking after. Uh, serious consequences for the church's reputation in the world. And serious consequences for the man himself. I've referred in previous sermons to men who have been appointed as elders who never should have been appointed. Men who were unqualified. But what does it mean to be qualified or unqualified for eldership? What are the qualifications? Well, we're actually given two big lists of qualifications for eldership in the Bible, both of which we read earlier. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. There's a lot of overlap between the two passages, but if you put them together uh, and see which are the same, which are different, you'll find 17 different qualifications for elders. And those are what we're going to look at both today and next week, God willing. But before we do that, it's worth highlighting that, uh, that apart from one or two of these qualifications, all of these things are meant to be seen in all Christians. Apart from one or two of them, all of these things are meant to be seen in all Christians. As we thought about the other week, while elders don't have to be able to teach, or while elders do have to be able to teach, all Christians don't have to be able uh, to teach uh, in that uh, more formal way. We'll also see today a, a qualification about managing their household, which applies uh, particularly to husbands. Uh, but apart from those things, that the qualities and characteristics listed in these two passages should be true uh, of all Christians. These two lists don't contain unusual qualities that only elders are to have but rather they contain qualities that should be seen unusually clearly in elders. I'll, I'll say that again. The two lists don't contain unusual qualities that, that only elders are to have uh, and other Christians d won't have, but rather they contain qualities that should be seen unusually clearly in elders. Elders should be leaders of the congregation in each of these things. So don't think, well, this sermon is only relevant to, to me in terms of thinking through who to vote for when it comes to an elder election. 
Because with only a few exceptions, this list of characteristics are to be true of every one of us. It's also important to make something as clear as I can before we get into this today. And that is that someone doesn't become a Christian by doing any of these things. In fact, unless we have been born again by the Spirit of God, it's impossible for us to do any of these things. We don't become Christians by doing any of these things. We become Christians by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And then, by his power and through the work of the Holy Spirit, he helps us live this way. So what we're looking at today is actually the characteristics of lives that have been transformed by Jesus and so if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, your, your first priority today is, is to believe in Jesus uh, because you, you can't uh, try and put these things into practice unless you have that new heart. And it's important to say as well that even the best elders won't do these things perfectly. The first characteristic on both lists is that an elder must be above reproach. That means blameless. It means there's to be no hint of scandal about their life. It means that there isn't any one of these qualifications that the man doesn't meet. But it doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that they do meet every one of these criteria. But it doesn't mean that there isn't room for them to grow in any of these areas. It doesn't mean they're sinless. Because while we strive for that, no one reaches it in this life. So that's all by way of introduction to what we'll be looking at over these next two weeks. And today we want to especially pick out the qualifications on this list that relate to an elder's home life, to his family life. Someone has said that a man's family life is the entrance exam for eldership. It's not the only qualification. Someone could have an exemplary family life, but... but, but not of the first clue how to, how to try and sit, sit down with someone who's been troubled by, by false teaching and, and, and unravel that. But, but the clearest evidence we usually have as to whether a man will be a good elder is his family life. Paul makes that connection in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Near the very top of the list in both Timothy and Titus is that an elder must be the husband of one wife or literally a one woman man. Now there are very few people who would say that an elder must be married. There are very few people that would say that a single man cannot be an elder. The Apostle Paul talks about the advantages of singleness for serving God in 1 Corinthians 7. And I don't want anything that I say today to take away from that. Marriage is a foundational building block both in society and in the church. The Christian family is one of the most powerful forces for good in this world. And so Satan particularly wants to attack it. Uh, and so we particularly need to talk about it and defend it. But it would be wrong to so emphasise marriage and children that we forget the vital roles that single people have to play in the church as well. 
It would be wrong to, to so emphasize marriage and children in the Christian life that we forget that Jesus wasn't married, that the Apostle Paul was single. But as we come to think about elders, even on a purely statistical level, most people marry, and so the majority of elders will be married. And if an elder is married, he is to be faithful to his wife in mind and body. In the culture that surrounded Timothy and Titus, men who were faithful to only one woman would have been very rare. But it wasn't to be so in the church. And in our own culture, one of the key issues in this area is pornography. A man who has a secret pornography habit simply doesn't meet the criteria of being a one-woman man. And no matter how qualified he might be in other ways, until that issue is dealt with, he's not qualified for office in the church. So if an elder is to be married, he's to be a one-woman man. Of course, the principles here uh, largely apply to, to single men as well. An elder doesn't have to be married. But unless he has the, the, the gift of singleness, to use a, a word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7, unless he has that gift of singleness, being married will be an advantage to him in the role. Or at least it will be an advantage to him if he is married to a wife who will help and not hinder his role. Someone has said that so much of the ministry of an elder is either enhanced or hamstrung by his wife. Either enhanced or hamstrung. Hamstrung if she's indiscreet and blows any hope of him being able to deal sensitively with pastoral issues. Hamstrung if she wants to try and run the church through her husband. But enhanced in so many ways if her priorities are to be kingdom, are, are kingdom priorities. Uh, and for any uh, men in the congregation who, who aren't married but, are, but would hope one day to be so, I, I trust that is the type of woman that you are looking for. Above all, for a woman whose priorities are kingdom priorities, who is living uh, for something greater than this world. And one way in which any wife, uh, and particularly an elder's wife, uh, can be a particular help to us men is when it comes to the qualification that an elder must be hospitable. That's something that occurs on both of these lists. But it's probably a qualification that doesn't feature as highly as it should when we think about eldership. Or even to our thinking about church planting, evangelism, or just church life in general. Both these lists mention hospitality. So, so what is hospitality? Literally, the word means love for strangers. In the original context, it would have meant putting up Christians who were traveling through your area, having people who you'd never met before staying in your home, feeding them and sending them on their way rejoicing. Uh, that, that's a, a phrase from, from 3 John 1, sending them on their way rejoicing. In our context, it would include welcoming visitors at a church into your home for lunch. It would include hosting go-teamers and other short-term workers. It would include providing uh, 
or helping provide the food for the church lunch. It would include reaching out to a neighbour or a colleague and inviting them round for supper or for a meal in the hope that it will let you model the Christian life or share the gospel. And if hospitality means that we're to welcome strangers, how much more does it mean that we should regularly be having people from the church that we do know into our homes for food? We're not talking master chef here. It could be as simple as having someone round after the evening service for, for toast. It could be having someone round for a takeaway and to watch match of the day on a Saturday night. This isn't something that's just for elders. A few years ago we looked at the command in First Peter 4 to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That is a command of Jesus Christ. Uh, show hospitality not just to your family but to one another in fact next to the worship of God there's probably nothing more important to the health of a church than hospitality even if the worship of a church is wonderful if there's not a culture of hospitality it is hard to see how that church will thrive I came across a lovely quote about hospitality from Carl Truman a few weeks ago. Here's what he says. There is nothing I remember more fondly from my time as a student than kind people at my church giving me a Sunday lunch on occasion or inviting me round for a glass of wine every now and then. Like Fezziwig's ball, such things cost just a few pounds but they can be more dramatic in shaping one's view of the church and of Christianity than many a sermon. He goes on, Not that the ministry of the word is not the most important thing. It is, but hospitality is powerful too. That's why church leaders need to engage in it. It shows the love of Christ and it burns good memories into the minds of those who receive it. Maybe in our context we might want to swap the glass of wine for something else but hospitality shapes people's views of Christianity it shows them the love of Christ and it burns good memories into the minds of those who receive it we thought earlier about the fact that there will always be those in our churches who are on their own and one of the reasons that we're not to talk about the physical family as if it was the be-all and end-all is because in the church God is creating a new family not just people who sit in the same building for an hour or two on a Sunday but people who share their meals and indeed their very lives with each other it's such a counter-cultural way to live you know in a culture where people don't even know their neighbours and while it's commanded for all Christians elders are to take the lead on it Now we do have to be clear that because of their life circumstances there will be people in every church, uh, maybe many people in every church who won't be able to have others in their home whether it's because they're, they're past the stage that they're physically able to do it or because they're married to someone who isn't supportive or because their children have particular needs or disabilities that means having people in their home is problematic at that particular stage of life or some other reason that means someone in the church is more in need of 
receiving hospitality than giving it. In the church, we're, depending on the stage of life that we're at, we're not all called to give hospitality. We're not all called to have others in our home. Uh, for some of us, our, our, our need is more to accept hospitality than to give it. And a man who fits the other criteria for eldership may have valid reasons why hospitality isn't really an option for him. But while that's not a sin, it also means that if he is unable for valid reasons to show hospitality in any form, he shouldn't be elected as an elder. And particularly in a congregation of our size, if a man has been part of a congregation for a while, uh, but if you have had absolutely no opportunity to be in his home, uh, whether through an invitation for, for just yourself to come round or, or a general invert invitation uh, for, for uh, the whole church to come round. If you haven't been in a man's home, you probably shouldn't be voting for them as an elder. Uh, that's how important this is. Because if they haven't been hospitable up till now, why would you expect them to be once they become an elder? I'm not saying that where there hasn't been the opportunity that men are sinning. Uh, as I said, there are valid reasons why hospitality isn't an option for some, but an elder must be hospitable. And obviously we're talking here about men who are married. We're not saying that single men have to invite single women round or things like that. But there are other contexts and opportunities where single men can show hospitality. Elders are to be models for the congregation. They're to model uh, to less mature believers what it looks like to hold family worship, what it looks like to keep the Lord's Day, uh, what it looks like for the verse, as for me in my house we will serve the Lord, not just to look nice when, when, it's, when it's put on a plaque and put up on the wall, but, but what, it, what it looks like when it's lived out in practice. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. What does that mean? We'll come and spend an evening with us. Come and uh, regularly spend time with us and you'll see. Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. And elders must be willing to do likewise. Hospitality is also particularly important when it comes to thinking about potential elders because it's only really when you're in someone's home that you can see what they're really like. The home is where you see how a man interacts with his wife and children. The home is where you see most clearly what their children are like. Why does it matter what their children are like, you might ask? Well, again, that's part of the criteria on both of these lists. 1 Timothy 3, 4 says that a man must keep his children submissive, while Titus 1, 6 says that an elder's children must be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And of all the qualifications of an elder, of all 17 of these, this is probably the most controversial can a father save his children? Can he impart 
new life to them? Can he cause them to be born again by the Spirit of God? No. But if he couldn't have a particularly strong influence on them, then the fact that Paul makes this a qualification for eldership makes no sense. If this is saying that a father cannot have an exceedingly strong influence on the spiritual life of his children, then it would make no sense for Paul to say this. Yes, God is sovereign in how our children turn out, but in his sovereignty, God uses their parents to a far greater extent than any other influence in all normal circumstances. Uh, it's something we see throughout the Bible. God says of Abraham in Genesis 18, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God doesn't say, I've chosen Abraham that he may follow me and then when his children grow up, well, they can make their own decision. Uh, that's not the way the Bible talks about bringing up children. This is what every Christian father is to do by God's grace. We're not just talking about elders here. Every Christian father is to lead his family in such a way that his children serve God from the heart by God's grace. Do we think that our children are, are no more likely to believe in Jesus than the child that sits beside them at school? Surely not. Surely not. We believe that our children are already part of the church. That's why we baptise them. And we do so with the prayerful confidence, though not presumption, that what was pictured in their baptism will become a reality in their life if it isn't already. It's like they're engaged to be married. Sometimes engaged couples don't get married, but it's not normal. It's not what we expect. Uh, we're not shocked when engaged couples get married. It's the rule, it's not the exception. Perhaps someone's thinking, well, well, that's easy for, for you to say when your children are, are still young. Give it a few years and maybe we'll see. But my authority for saying these things isn't based on my experience, even though what I've observed in my own upbringing and what I've seen in the lives of others backs it up. But I'm not arguing based on my experience, but based on God's word. But if you'd rather listen to someone whose children are older and who's been a minister for a bit longer, here's, here's a quote from Warren Peel. He's a, a minister in the Irish RP Church. He's the father of four daughters, all of whom are, are at the teenage stage or, or older. And he's also been the minister of two large congregations. So he's seen plenty of Christian families bringing up their children. And this is how he puts it in light of uh, both scripture and his experience. He says, it would be a very strange thing if a child rejects what they've been taught from their earliest infancy. Children believe what their parents tell them to believe. Whatever is normal and modelled in the home is reflected in them. So if a man's children don't believe, then in all normal circumstances, you would expect it to be because of serious neglect on behalf of the parents. And it's the man who bears the responsibility for that as head of the home. And that neglect excludes him from the office of elder. 
Ian Hamilton, who was a Presbyterian minister in Scotland and then England for 36 years, uh, puts it this way. He says that in all those 36 years, he could only think of one situation where a child had rebelled and that rebellion couldn't be explained by the, the failure of his parents in the, of the parents in their covenant upbringing of that child. So, so one exception, one time when there was nothing in how the child had been brought up that explained their rebellion. So we can't draw a straight line between the two in every situation. But one exception in 36 years. And Ian Hamilton, he wasn't simply talking about parents who do the right things making sure their children are in church every week doing family worship with their children and so on those things must be done and as parents surely those are things that we'll delight to do for our children anyway but there must also be an atmosphere of grace in the home that can be one area where parents fall down in churches like ours particularly fathers they may tick all the reformed boxes in terms of doctrine and practice but they don't show love to their children they don't delight in God themselves and their children grow up and look at it and say I don't want that for myself and the easy thing to do would be to blame the culture to blame the schools to say, well, they as fathers have done their best, but what can you expect given all the other influences on their children? But the men in Timothy and Titus's congregations weren't living in a Christian culture. And yet Paul puts the necessity that a man's children are believers on the same level as the necessity that he only have one wife. These aren't easy things to talk about and God is a God of forgiveness. If you think that you've failed as a parent, and all of us who are parents have failed in many ways at many times, but if you've failed as a parent, you're not beyond God's grace, and neither are your children, even if today they seem a million miles from him. These aren't easy things to talk about, but this goes way beyond eldership. We're talking about the salvation of our children here. It doesn't get much more important than that. We're talking about the, the future of the church. And if by God's grace we have a, a bigger role as parents in our children's salvation than we've assumed up till now, we need to know about that. And we also can't skip over this because there, there are contexts where you have men who are elders in churches uh, and maybe there's absolutely no doubt about that man's salvation but, but maybe none of his children are believers and, and no one thinks it's odd, uh, no one sees any problem with it. Now we are talking here about men who were already believers when their children were young. I, I know of godly elders who've been converted after their children had already grown up and then they were elected elders even after that. And now that they're Christians, they're, they're desperate that their children would believe too. But those children are no longer under their roof. The father doesn't have the opportunity to influence them the way that he once did. And in that case, I don't think we'd say that a man would be disqualified from being an elder. 
But if he was a believer when they were young, and particularly if he still has children at home, children who are still under his influence, but it's obvious that they persistently flout parental authority, if it's clear that they despise the things of God, if it's clear that to use the language of Titus 1.6, they, they are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, uh, which are big words for wild living and rebellion, or that in the words of 1 Timothy 3, that they're not submissive, then he isn't to be elected as an elder. Uh, to quote uh, from Warren Peel again, if he can't even lead those nearest and most under his influence to trust in Christ, if he can't teach them to follow Christ, how can we expect him to lead anyone else to follow Christ? If he's not able to maintain family worship, how can he maintain public worship? If he doesn't discipline his children, how can he exercise discipline in the church? If he can't command the respect of his own children, how can anyone else respect and obey him? For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In normal circumstances for, for men who, who are married, uh, for men who have children, the home will be the great testing ground of whether they're qualified for the eldership or not. A man's family life is the entrance exam for eldership. So we look today at a number of these 17 qualifications for, for eldership, all under this theme of home life. And I trust that we've seen the things we focused on, they're vital not just for elders, but for the church in general. Elders are to model these things, but the rest of the congregation are to follow their example. A church could be doctrinally orthodox, its worship could be by the book, but if the families in it don't have healthy home lives, if their doors are shut to visiting Christians, new converts, fellow church members... If they, they don't have meals together, as we're about to do in a few moments, can we even call that a New Testament church? It's very far short of what we see in the New Testament. So 17 qualifications, some of which we'll come back to next Lord's Day. None of these qualifications are, are seen perfectly in your current elders nor will they be seen perfectly in any elders that God in his kindness gives us in the future. Jesus Christ is the only perfect man. When he came to earth, people who walked in darkness saw a great light. And yet, by all of us living out these things in a busy, hard-hearted, individualistic, unfaithful, self-centered world, there is an amazing opportunity for the light of Christ to shine out in this community. Amen. We'll close by singing Psalm 128. Psalm 128, page 324. Psalm 128, so towards the back of the psalm book, the page number at the bottom is 324. Page 324. And we'll sing it to the tune 255. Tune 255. 
The psalm begins, blessed are all who fear the Lord and who are walking in his ways. And the next verse goes on to speak about his wife and his children. It talks about God's blessing on his family life. And then it ends in verse 4 that the prayer that Jerusalem, which represents the church, would prosper. And those, those two things aren't, aren't radically separate topics, are they? As God blesses Christian families, as they walk in his ways, the result will be blessing for the church uh, and through the church, blessing for the world. One of, one of the Carl says, doesn't it? He came to make his blessings flow far as the church is found. And one of the ways the Lord Jesus makes his blessings flow is through us as individual believers, uh, through Christian families, uh, and through that into the church and on into the world. As those outside the kingdom are brought in, as those without physical families of their own find a welcome within the family of God. So Psalm 128, page 324, tune 255, will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 